Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today Attorney Jared Bazemore from the law firm of Spain & Gillen, LLC, in Birmingham, Alabama. Jared is a partner with the firm whose practice areas include insurance defense matters and coverage issues. He is also a member of DRI. Thanks for joining us today, Jared. Hey, it's my pleasure, John. Today's discussion is on the collateral source rule in Alabama. This has been a main topic of late that is impacting the courts in Alabama. And Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Uh, Yes, uh, can you define the collateral source rule? Uh, Sure, Brendan. The old previously followed collateral source rule in our state, in Alabama, held that benefits received by a plaintiff from a source wholly independent of and collateral to, i.e. unrelated to the wrongdoer, and that's most likely health insurance benefits, those could not be admitted into evidence or otherwise used to diminish the damages otherwise recoverable from the wrongdoer. Now, this rule came into play most often when a plaintiff's medical expenses had been satisfied by his or her own health insurance, usually for an amount far less than the face of value of the provider's charges. Under the old rule, since the plaintiff's health insurance benefits were wholly independent and collateral to the defendant, the defendant thus could not introduce those payments into evidence for purposes of hopefully reducing the amount which the defendant may have been liable to pay for his or her wrongful conduct. What is the historical significance and relevance? Well, the collateral source rule in Alabama was first recognized approximately 100 years ago. That was in the case of Long versus Kansas City Railroad. The doctrine was reaffirmed in numerous appellate decisions for the next 75 years or so. However, in 1987, the legislature, the Alabama legislature, enacted a statute specifically addressing personal injury litigation. Now, this statute, actually there's two statutes, they specifically provided that evidence that a plaintiff's hospital or medical expenses have been or will be paid or reimbursed shall be, and I repeat, shall be admissible as competent evidence at trial. Six years after this statute's reenactment, in 1993, our Supreme Court formally recognized the old plaintiff-friendly collateral source rule is having been abolished. Again, that rule had prevailed for approximately 75 years. Now, in debating the appropriateness of the old rule, basically there are two opposing positions. On the one hand, if the basic goal of our tort law is only that of compensating plaintiffs for his or her actual losses, then evidence of the collateral source benefits should be admitted to reduce the total damages against the defendant. Otherwise, the plaintiff can be seen in a lot of cases as receiving a windfall, a double recovery. But now, on the other hand, reducing a plaintiff's recovery by virtue of benefits which the plaintiff received, most likely through his or her own efforts, those benefits from a collateral source can be seen as granting a windfall to the defendant by allowing the defendant to be relieved of full responsibility for his or her wrongdoing when those collateral source benefits are admitted into evidence. After the 93 Supreme Court decision recognizing the abrogation or abolishment of the old rule, 
our appellate courts changed tracks in 1996 and went back to the earlier rule in its decision, it's a landmark decision, American Legion versus Leahy. In Leahy, the court considered those policy rationales that we just discussed and concluded that if there must be a windfall, it's usually considered more just if the injured person profits rather than allowing the wrongdoer to be relieved of full responsibility for his or her conduct. This rationale under Leahy, however, only prevailed for four years until Marsh versus Green was decided in or about the year 2000. Marsh reabolished the old rule, thus again paving the way for defendants to admit into evidence amounts which the plaintiff received from health insurance. In practice, under Marsh, what we see at trial is once we're allowed to introduce the collateral source information, the health insurance benefits received by the plaintiff, the plaintiff then gets a turn and is entitled to introduce into evidence the cost he or she incurred in obtaining those benefits. And they also get to inform the jury that in the event of recovery, the health insurance carrier must be reimbursed for benefits that it paid. So in essence, under Marsh, the jury hears everything before rendering a verdict, not just the high face amount of the provider's charges, which in most cases, as you know, is never fully paid, certainly not paid by the plaintiff. And Jared, why is this such an important topic today? John, the defense bar had previously considered the abolishment of the old rule to be a fairly well-settled issue, at least as related to medical expenses. However, within the last one to two years, we on the defense side have seen an increasing number of plaintiff attorneys trying to exclude, usually by way of a pretrial motion in limine, any admission or reference to the plaintiff's medical expenses having been paid by health insurance. Various trial courts, in researching this issue, some have agreed with the plaintiff efforts and have questioned whether our appellate courts got it right when deciding the sentinel case of Marsh v. Green and or whether Marsh v. Green actually goes so far as to unequivocally abolish the old doctrine, which, as I said, had prevailed for decades in our state. There have also been some isolated instances of the federal courts, federal district courts, not admitting evidence of collateral source payments under their belief that the 1986 statutes, or at least one of them, being merely procedural in nature. Thus, those statutes should be binding on the state courts only, but not binding on the federal judiciary. Presently, as you can appreciate, there's some confusion from case to case and from trial court to trial court as to where the jury will only hear the face amount of the plaintiff's medical specials. That would be the old rule. Or we'll also hear the greatly reduced amount paid by health insurance in satisfaction of the medical expenses. Uh, Of course, what a court decides in that regard greatly affects the defendant's exposure and how liability carriers are to fund their reserves and evaluate what a case is worth and whether it can or can't be settled. I think both sides simply want some certainty and finality to this issue. On the defense side, the argument has always been that the interest of justice weigh in favor of a jury getting to hear everything, both the face amount of the medical charges 
and also also the benefits which the plaintiff has already received or will receive from health insurance and satisfaction of those damages. I feel fairly confident in the upcoming months our appellate courts will again have the opportunity to address these collateral source issues and maybe consider other issues not considered in Marsh versus Green and will clear up the uncertainty hopefully once and for all. Are there any other states with similar or comparable laws to this, or are they watching Alabama at all? John, there are states which follow approaches similar to the approach that I set forth a few minutes ago when describing the Marsh versus Green decision. Again, Marsh versus Green had reversed the 96 Leahy decision to the extent that Leahy had deemed the statutes which we previously discussed as unconstitutional. Obviously, this issue is being monitored closely by both the plaintiff and defense bars here in Alabama, and we do believe that other states will also pay close attention, especially if the Marsh decision were to be somehow overturned or chipped away at and the old plaintiff-friendly collateral source rule reinstituted. We believe that the outside interest would be most prevalent from the plaintiff side in those states presently subscribing to an approach akin to what was set forth in the 2000 Marsh decision. Again, Marsh had revived the 86 statutes and paved the way for admission of the collateral source medical payments to be admitted into evidence. Jared, what specifically do insurance companies and self-insureds need to be concerned about? Until all uncertainty is removed, it would be my recommendation to both insurance carriers and self-insureds that in their pre-litigation matters, they need to pay special attention to the venue in which a matter, a claim may ultimately be filed in and how that specific venue, and in particular its judges in that venue, how they have treated the collateral source issues in recent months. Once a case has been filed, I think it's important for all attorneys involved, both the plaintiff attorney in the case and the defense attorney in the case, to early on in that litigation inquire of the court just how that particular judge intends to treat the collateral source payments, namely the medical expenses and amounts paid by health insurance. The answer to that question from the court will obviously affect how exposure is going to be evaluated regardless of whether liability weighs for or against the defendant. As a defendant and defense attorney, if you ultimately proceed to trial in a court in which the judge has excluded any evidence of the collateral source payments, then obviously the defense attorney will need to properly preserve this issue for possible appeal through sound evidentiary efforts to have the collateral source payments admitted at trial. And if you're denied in that respect, I think it's highly advisable, if not completely necessary for purposes of appeal, to go so far as making an offer of proof outside the presence of the jury in the event that, again, that the court excludes you from admitting that into evidence. Again, John and Brendan, it's our hope that any confusion or other uncertainty on this issue will be put to rest by this year's end. I will uh, certainly try to keep you posted on any developments on this issue. Okay, that's great, Jared. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. That was Jared Bazemore from the law firm of Spain and Gillen, LLC, in Birmingham, Alabama. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan for our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. 
To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 